to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers, part of the Dialogue, po part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. And today we're going to have a discussion about poetry, and our guest host today is Elizabeth Garcia, the poetry editor for Dialogue. Uh, she was the previous poetry editor for Sigola, a contributor to Fire in the Pasture, 21st Mormon Century Poets, which we may talk about today. And her first chapbook, uh, Stunt Double, was published in 2015. Uh, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, this is kind of fun because I have corresponded over the last how many years uh, with Dana on different things and with Tyler. Um, and so this is a fun way to actually speak to you guys and get to know you a little bit. Um, so I was hoping tonight that um, I could give each of you some time to talk about your most recent book, um, some of your influences, um, share some of the things that maybe most readers might not pick up on that you can kind of, um, you know, dumb it down a little bit for the most of us. Um, and then I wanted to take some time to talk about Mormon poetry. Um, and I know, you know, both uh, collaborated on the um, Dove song, uh, Poems on Heavenly Mother, maybe talk a little bit about that. And um, yeah, some other uh, things that you're working on currently. Um, so welcome. We're happy to, to have you guys here. Um, Let's introduce them. So we have yes. two, two of our great poets with us today, Dana Patterson <laughs> and Tyler Chadwick. Uh, Liz, do you want to introduce them? Yes. Um, so I'm going to start with Dana. Um, here is uh, Dana Patterson. She is a photographer, textile artist, and irreverent bardophile. She's the author of Titania and Yellow by Pork Belly Press, 2019, and If Mother Braids a Waterfall by Signature Books, 2020. Our honors include the Association for Mormon Letters Poetry Award and the 2019 Dignity Not Detention Poetry Prize, judged by Ilya Kaminsky. Her creative work has appeared in Ecotheo, Canyon Review, and Poetry. She's the founding editor, now emerita, of Psaltery and Liar, and a co-editor of Dove Song, Heavenly Mother, and Mormon Poetry. She lives with her husband and two daughters in a little patch of enchanted forest in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then we also have Tyler Chadwick, um, who is, I think most people know who Tyler is, <laughs> um, an award-winning writer, editor, and teacher who received his PhD in English and the teaching of English from Idaho State University. He teaches writing at Utah Valley University and has four books to his name, two anthologies, Fire in the Pasture, 21st Century Mormon Poets, and Dust Song, Heavenly Mother and Mormon Poetry, and a collection of poetry and essays, Field Notes on Language and Kinship. His most recent book is Litany with Wings, published by BCC Press in 2022. He lives in Ogden, Utah with his wife, Jess, and their four daughters. Um, so welcome, both of you. Um, I wanted, like I said, I wanted to give each of you some time to share about your collection and um you know talk about what went into its creation um so i thought i'd start with ladies first dana um and uh i guess start by um telling us um a little bit about your your book um 
Uh, it's called Oh Lady Speak Again by Signature Books. And I wanted you to, uh, you know, give us a little bit, kind of a, you know, one liner about what it's about, but and tell us a little bit about what um, questions and preoccupations um, drove you to create it. Um, if you would share some of that with us. Yeah, um, thank you for having me and Tyler. Um, thank you for having both of us on this evening. I'm really excited to chat and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to um, prepare some questions for us. And I'm excited to talk about this book. Um, gosh, it's been out for two weeks, maybe a week and a half. <laughs> so it still it still feels very surreal to be holding it in my hands. And um, but yeah, I I wrote it for my graduate program at Western Washington University. I did the MFA in creative writing. And actually when I started the program, um, I had about 70 pages worth of poems that I thought was gonna be my first book. Mm -hmm. They were poems that were interested in Shakespeare and motherhood mostly and, and interrogating some of the female roles in Shakespeare. Of those 70 pages, two poems made it into Oh Lady. Wow, 70 pages is a collection by, by itself. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I thought that I already had a book. So right. um, yeah, so the two poems that made it in are both revised as well. Okay. So it was a huge time of, I, I feel like growth as a poet for me. I and I imagine. Um, it was quite a journey. But yeah, the, the book, like it started, I started getting interested in, in Shakespeare at about the same, same time that I became a mom. Mm. So those interests are kind of coming together. And I was thinking about my own mom who um, had three babies in three years, suffered from extreme uh, postpartum depression and left my family. So that comes into this book a little bit and yes. thinking about there's there are so many families in Shakespeare where there is no mother. Right. Uh, it's a father with with a daughter or a father with daughters like King Lear or uh, Prospero in the Tempest with his his Miranda. Um, so that. Yeah, so I started imagining myself into some of those roles and um, my story. And then another thing that happened as I was writing or getting ready to write these poems is I uh, had what I will call a faith crisis. I, I know that not everybody likes to, the term faith crisis or prefers mm -hmm. something like faith journey, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it did feel quite crisis-y. Um, sure. This book starts with a shipwreck. It starts with the shipwreck that Miranda sees at the beginning of the Tempest. She's looking out of the ocean and she sees this terrible shipwreck and she runs to her father Prospero and, and has said, is there any magic that you can, that you can use to stop the shipwreck that is happening? So that shipwreck that begins the book is, um, is a metaphor for my own feeling of my, of how faith, the faith crisis felt to me. And I'm still on a spiritual journey and it's not over. And I respect everybody's individual spiritual journeys. 
Um, I, I want to say that I did not and I do not write to convince anybody to leave Mormonism or to stay in Mormonism. I feel like that is a deeply personal journey for everybody. Um, yeah. But th those are some of the concerns and it's a lot. <laughs> it is. And right. Well, and the way that they, um, you know, weave together in your book seems so almost effortless. I mean, I, I can imagine that um, it must have been a lot easier to kind of braid those together because you were experiencing those things kind of at the same time. Um, that it feels much more personal than just this uh, cerebral, oh, I'm going to compare these interesting characters. Um, it definitely comes across as very, very personal. Um, and I can see that, uh, you know, you kind of weave together these strands. I can almost count like three or four. There's Shakespeare's heroines, your own experience, um, your relationship with your mother, that there's parallels with Heavenly Mother. And then also um, with early Mormons, you have some ancestors who practice polygamy. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I can see all of those woven in there and it's really um, marvelous um, how you're able to uh, weave these together um, in just, just such interesting ways. I, I think that's um, wonderful. Um, Thank you. Can I tell you a story? Yes. Since Tyler's here, <laughs> um, there are a couple of epigraphs in this book from uh, an ancestor of mine, Charles Ramsden Bailey, um, and he also appears in my first book, If Mother. I was wondering about that because I've read that one. It's very good. Ancestor, <laughs> but um, I sent the manuscript of this to Tyler, and I don't think it's fair that he's got his camera turned off. We should be able to see his reaction. <laughs> reaction um there we go tyler. fine there you go what you remember <laughs> I, I sent the manuscript of this book to tyler to get some feedback and he responded within a couple minutes do you remember what happened yeah. Mm -hmm. oh <laughs> he's yeah like, um he's like wait you're related to charles ramston bailey like, shut up you guys are like cousins we're, we're cousins oh my gosh how i love it yeah <laughs> yep He's different like, wife but same dude no 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 same wife different oh, son. yeah That's yeah. Right. yeah so wow. he had three wives Susanna Joanna and Hannah and were both descendant descendant from Charles and Susanna first wife right yeah right? sounds right wow <laughs> that's what you said at the time man I'm holding yeah. you no, that is what I said, which was, I, I have to tell you this now, though, when I read when mother braids a waterfall, like uh -huh. having those pictures staring at me on every page, it was, it was, it was a really, uh, how do I say it intense, not intense, but it was a very like intimate experience when I was reading that whole book because they're staring, my ancestors are staring up at me from the page. And I was like, holy cow, this is, it was, it was trippy. Yeah, yeah. Um, pulled out. there's um, a picture in my book of the 19 sons of oh my goodness. Charles Ramston Bailey and his various wives. And, and I think we figured out that you were from Elmer over here and that my, yeah my dude is back here john anyway 
So there's like a poetry gene then that you guys happen to get. Yeah. Maybe it's the recessive yeah. one. Yes, it only comes up every now and then. Uh, yeah. So you're probably related to us too, Liz. Maybe do a little family history. Oh, I, I <laughs> doubt it. To Charles Brampton. I mean, uh, if I'm related to any pioneers, it's like way up the tree and way down the tree. So, no, I'm pretty okay. Southern. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, that was the first, I think that's the first time that I was like really excited about polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> kind of cool. I'm going to honor for your work. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, like that connection to Tyler. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's kind of serendipitous and cool. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Anyway. Okay. Mormon, we're getting smaller mm -hmm. <laughs> as always. Um, so, uh, Dana, I wanted you to, um, share a little bit about, um, some of your creative process. And I know you kind of went through this, um, uh, not metamorphosis is probably too strong a word, but, you know, in your, uh, MFA program, and as you, you know, worked on these, um, and to talk about some of the, uh, forms that you decided on, you have a variety of forms in the collection. Uh, and I notice a lot of them kind of seem like assemblages, um, you know, especially the ones where you yeah, talk about colors, you know, the, the shades of um, hues of blue, things like that. Um, so what uh, kind of drove you to, to choose those different forms or play with those forms? Was it just experimentation or was there something in particular that you um, felt was appropriate? I think I'm a little bit of a restless poet. Um, mm -hmm. I like to try new things. I do like to experiment. I was certainly being encouraged to try new things in my MFA program. Really? And, and I will say, I know that MFA is not for everybody. I've heard some people say that an MFA for them was uh, actually caused a lot of harm. And oh, they spent um, years trying to recover from an MFA experience Goodness, that felt. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> Have you only heard MFAs praised and held up? Kind of. I mean, I mean, not to belabor my own questions. I have a master's, but I have considered getting an MFA. It just doesn't feel financially worth it at this point in my life. Um, but I haven't heard horror stories, so do tell. <laughs> yeah, I have. I've heard of poets taking years to recover from the workshop experience having that be like really a silencing, um, mm. critical, vulnerable in not a good way experience yeah. for them. That, that was not how I experienced my MFA. I felt encouraged and supported and just, I continued to be mentored by the person who chaired my MFA thesis, Bruce Beasley, who's a wonderful poet and um, I feel really lucky to have him as a mentor in my life. We're actually reading together from, he has a new book coming out and I have this book coming out and we're going to read together on Shakespeare's birthday. So I, oh, I, awesome. I feel like this continuation of support and mentorship. I forgot your question. <laughs> that might happen a few times tonight. <laughs> um experimentation you know what um, yeah. what made you choose those forms 
Yeah, so I feel like Bruce experiments a lot. Um, my poetry professors were showing us a wide variety of forms and I just, I, I, I like to try new things. I start feeling like if, if I'm writing, well, that's not true. I wrote a lot of self-portrait poems in this mm -hmm. collection. Which are all great. I, oh, thank you. In my opinion. <laughs> I, I do sometimes fall into the, like this rut of, oh, this thing is working. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to experiment yes. with this form. But I also feel really restless in a, in a lot of ways. But I had a lot of fun with those color poems. I'm glad that yeah. you brought those up. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel like when you have a blank page in front of you, just intimidated and not knowing? Every time. What? Every time. I can't start with a blank page. I have to start with raw materials. Yes. I have to. So the color poems in particular, for example, the self-portrait as Ophelia in 33 hues of blue. I made a huge list of different shades of blue. Yes. And I read through Hamlet and pulled out some lines, many more lines than what appear in the poem. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a list of blue terms. I had a list of Shakespeare quotes from Hamlet. And then I also generated some some of my own phrases um, and then moved those pieces around like a collage, right. more like collage. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. I, I think of them as like word mosaics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, it's very validating to see that because I, I feel like so many poems I read, they just flow so well. And you think, did that really just um, you know, was that born out of your head like Aphrodite? It's so not fair. I have to <laughs> work really hard to dig and scrape and find things. And and some of my favorite poems that I've done are things that I have found and put together. And um, instead of trying to just be brilliant <laughs> on the blank page, yeah. Um, yeah, well, and they, they do, they... Um, they're very powerful. I, I, again, I'm can't be um, <laughs> complimentary enough. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you about technique. I see that you use a lot of slashes uh, within the lines, um, almost as if you're breaking without breaking. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about that. Like, what um, was that? Just something you were playing around with? Is there some kind of um, concept behind it that um you felt i don't know emphasize the characters or um what what prompted you to use that yeah um i i think i use those backward slashes a lot in poems like anagnorisis in the green room um there's a a feeling or a mood that is kind of hiding away in that poem. Mm. Uh, mm, putting on a fictive skin of stepping into character to not be seen. And mm. I feel like the slashes on the page give the poem a sort of feeling of enclosedness mm. Mm -hmm. that hopefully mirrors the content of the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking to me, it was like a way of um, it's almost being breathless that um, to have to have those breaths so often 
um, would indicate like this emotional um, mood, I guess. Um, but again, that was just, that was my guess. I'm like, hmm, is that, is that what's going on there? I think um, that's a good guess. I think that's a good guess, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, it, that could it could feel very breathless if you read a breath for each of those breaks, yeah. <clears throat> each of the backslashes, mm -hmm. which is how we indicate a line break when we're not doing a line break. If you're like quoting right, the line of poetry, right, then then mm -hmm. you'll <clears throat> then you'll put a backslash to indicate that there's a line break there. So, yeah, you could read them as a breath, and that would that would actually feel really breathless, mm -hmm. um, which maybe also works for this the feeling in that poem of um discomfort mm -hmm. this ease with the self with the this the i the speak the the poem is about stepping into character telling the story through a persona through a, a character rather than um directly mm -hmm. And and so I think I think that works. The breathlessness mm -hmm. being sort of mm -hmm. an indicator of being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, one of the ones that I loved was Hermione is Phantom Limb, L I M N. Uh, and I love how you use puns in so many of these and uh, the wordplay um, so often. Uh, oh, where was the line? Um, well, and it goes along with the other poem that you were just mentioning. Um, uh, my blame, I self. You're playing with syntax as well um, to have all these double meanings about uh, the character, but also uh, the you know you as an author um, and how you kind of relate to these characters. Um, blame, I oracle, slow grace. Um, and I, I love, um, especially because there are these, um, you know, strands of uh, Heavenly Mother and presence there that when you're playing with language, it's uh, almost like trying to, uh, you know, recover whatever matriarchal influence uh, we might have had and, and subvert that patriarchal, you know, Shakespeare, the father of English language um, influence. Um, so, yeah, I, and I love uh, seeing that kind of experimentation. I, you know, personally intend to be very, um, follow that narrative line. Uh, and I love seeing people play with that. You're doing a really cool thing, Liz, that I didn't in fact intend, but I love it. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely in the Hermione section in the third section of the, of the book or se second section of the book where, where I'm thinking about the winter's tale and Hermione and Perdita and, and that reclaiming the mother and trying to reconnect with the lost mother. I hadn't yeah. thought about God, the mother, mm. but I it's really there. like that. I really it's like there. that. I mean, it's, it, the thing is there's so many places where you're talking about, and maybe it's because I'm reading it in the context of all of these Heavenly Mother poems you've written, you know? Um, but I mean, she's she's there, you know, uh, Isabella speaks in achromatics. Um, you're, you're making her speak when she doesn't speak in the play. Um, 
Oh, she's there. <laughs> I, and, you know, the, yeah. And just because I wasn't consciously thinking about it doesn't mean that it wasn't seeping into my unconscious. Because yeah. I, really, as you know, I'm very interested in the feminine divine. Yes. <laughs> that is a continued um, interest and obsession for me. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that reading. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you um, one more question and then see if you wanted to read one of your favorites from this collection. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, is there something uh, in this collection, some kind of strategy or motif or whatever it is that you wanted to maybe brag about or, or share that you think maybe most readers might not pick up on um because i know i tend to be worried about that like i i don't want to spell it all out i want people to to do the work when they read the the poems um but then i wonder if people are gonna pick up on it so is there anything that you know you wonder that people are picking up on um i i mean i there are definitely things that I that I put in the collection that I I fully trust that uh, I I think readers are smarter than I am. I mean, <laughs> all this beautiful interpretation of of God the Mother in that second section that that I hadn't really thought about or intended, and I but I love mm -hmm. it. So I actually think that readers are going to bring all different kinds of interpretations to it that I maybe didn't intend, but that I welcome and love. Once yeah. it's written and once it's out there, yep. I'm no longer in control. Right, right. The author's dead. <laughs> yeah, the readers make <laughs> from the text, and that is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. I, I will say that um, something that I tried, and you already mentioned this, that there are color poems mm -hmm. um, in each section. And I really struggle to organize books. Mm. I love writing a poem, but organizing it into a series that makes sense. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Well, and there's so many. <laughs> yeah. It is a long book. A long <laughs> um, so something that helped me was to think about the mood or the tone of each mm. of the five sections. And the book has five sections, like a five-act play of Shakespeare's, which I'm sure people right. will immediately catch on to. But something that helped me organize the book was to think of the mood of each section and to use the color poems as kind of anchors for those oh, moods. Yes, yes, yes. For the first um I'm section. taking notes here because I have to do a review. I'm like, oh yes, I need, let me write oh. that down. <laughs> <laughs> Is that allowed? Yes, tell me what to say, Dana. That's brilliant. Yes, do it. Um the first section. Uh, focuses on green as in innocence and youth and greenness mm -hmm. and blue the sorrow of the faith crisis the sorrow mm -hmm. of losing the mother and loss the second section is uh purple mm -hmm. which is my mom's favorite color so that's that part of that re reclamation and the purple also mm -hmm. of loss and wounding and mm -hmm. bruises and deep pain uh the third section is black and white and gray mixing those mm -hmm. together that right, isabel yes. speaks of achromatics yes fourth, fourth section is red is anger yes. and rage and birth. lady Macbeth. Mm -hmm. yes. lady Macbeth. and then fifth, fifth section is yellow 
rebirth, Titania, fairies, joy. <laughs> Fabulous. So, yeah. And that helped. That helped me organize the poems a little bit. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me. I, I hope that it that the mood and the flow of the poems makes sense to readers as well. Yeah. Well, they're beautiful. Um, they're very, uh, you know, Andrew was joking earlier and I fully uh, concur that, oh, I have to go to Google for this. So who's Jessica again? Oh, wait, I didn't read that play. So let me do some research. Um, so you do have to help you brush up on your Shakespeare. Um, and there are definitely some plays I'm like, oh, I need to find, I need to watch that one. That's a great story. I need, I need to um, go back to that. Um, but um, yeah, just so many uh, marvelous things in here. Um, you know, fun with language and uh, and very moving. Um, so. Uh, yes, I highly recommend it to our readers out there. Um, thank you. And uh, in a minute, we're going to return to you and uh, have you guys um, talk about Mormon poetry. Um, wanted to uh, give Tyler some time now to talk about uh, his book that came out uh, a few months ago. Uh, and um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the book. Um, Tell us what went into its creation. Um, it's called Litany with Wings. Um, and they do, they read, so many of them, they read like prayers. I mean, I think most poems, it could be considered prayers. Um, you know, there are desires and are things that were, that delight us. Um, uh, so go ahead and yeah, share a little bit about your book and what went into that. Oh, yes. Make me follow on Dana's awesome there. <laughs> um, so it's Litany with Wings, like you said, it released last April, so April 2022. Okay. So I'm coming up on a year, a one year book anniversary. Um, <laughs> so it it basically the book it does have a lot of like you say sort of prayers and meditations in it. So it it kind of takes up poetry as a, a petitionary act sort of meditative mm -hmm. space and reflection on a lot of things like a lot of um well the it, it sort of follows a, a story like a, a narrative if you will sort of an overarching so from the the beginning in the beginning to um like apotheosis like through a life the emergence of life and then life on earth and then godhood stuff like that so that's kind of a general like narrative of, of what happens in the book but along the way i meditate on like the things that happen in life on um, i was really preoccupied like through a lot of it with a lot of the earlier poems with notions of fatherhood and being mm -hmm. a spouse because i started yeah, writing I a lot of that with it. like gender roles and identity mm -hmm. um that... yeah you're in the beginning mm -hmm. yeah very much that was and especially like the earlier poems like i said because i was i was a young father when i started writing a lot of those poems and that probably comes through so as mm -hmm. as i was trying to develop as um as as a dad and as a husband and just as a man trying to figure out what my space was and how my story was developing differently than the traditional 
roles should be for a dad. Yeah. There's so many funny poems in there too about, I think you're checking out groceries and someone's <laughs> like, oh, you're playing mom today. It's like, uh, -huh. uh I guess. <laughs> Actually, no, not, but whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like that poem. Um, I like all the poems, of course, but so yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, well, overview of what's in there. Lots of, mm -hmm. lots of, lots of prayers, lots of, uh, I guess the, the big thing that readers will also notice is that there is a lot of meditations on art and artworks. Yeah. There are a lot of ekphrastic poems, um, that are really impressive. I, I kind of wish there were illustrations in there, but, um, yeah. That's a whole I do have <laughs> yeah massive I didn't have that much money but uh, <laughs> there is actually online on my website there's a digital companion so readers could go oh, right. there and um, look up the images that go with the poems so to kind of follow along there um, unfortunately I didn't get that up until after the book was released so there's no hint um. of it in the book well, so that was a missed opportunity. Those of you who are watching, now you can go to Tyler's website and click yeah. on the digital companion. Go look it up. <laughs> um, and I was curious about, um, you know, when you were doing the ekphrastic poems, did you, do you feel like they're easier or more difficult than some of your other poems? That's a good question. I'm I don't know. In one sense, it's kind of easier because I turned to the poems as an object of meditation. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also harder, or sorry, the images, the artworks mm -hmm. as an object of meditation. Um, but they're also harder because I didn't want to just, you know, describe the painting. Right. I wanted it to be a response to or thinking alongside what the artist was doing. Mm -hmm. So that kind was a jumping off point. Yeah. And so it's not just, oh, here's what is happening in like. this picture is what right. it looks like. Um, so there, that was, that's probably the, the difficulty there. The, the easier part was finding inspiration in them. And I probably started, I have way more that I started and didn't finish. Didn't but, finish. That didn't make it into the book, but there's, there was a lot of that. So, um, yeah, there are so many, um, uh, so many great um, concepts in here. You've got a lot of pastoral poems. Um, and I was really interested in, you have a section uh, where you're writing to your younger self as a missionary. And I gather from the context that you served in New Zealand. Correct, I did. Okay. Um, and that you're uh, incorporating uh, some of the beliefs of the Maori people. Um, the concept of koru is that how you say it i yeah the koru yeah. yes and i mean you've got a very helpful uh kind of appendage at the appendage appendix sorry um <laughs> a section at the back of your book about um some of those beliefs which i thought were really interesting um especially what is called the uh the sneeze or the breath yeah the, the um, sneeze of life yeah uh, talk about that for a minute, how uh, those concepts uh, figure into your I, either your identity or uh, you know LDS theology, or uh, what was it that made you kind of latch onto that and use those as a um, a motif? 
Well, I was when I was there, feels so long ago now, it was a different life. Um, but when I was there, I was I was fascinated by a lot of these these ideas and especially like the richness of Maori carvings and artworks. Um, and I didn't really get into a lot of it when I was there, but when I came home, I started thinking more about some of the mythologies behind it. Um, and in one of my poems called Te Kore, which is Maori for um, the nothingness, mm. um, I, there's a line in there where I say something about this, an, an orgy of mythologies. Mm. And so, so I, I saw myself pulling from all of these different mythologies and holding them together, not trying to like mute any of them, but to let them inform the way that I see the world. Um, and to not, you ask about how it relates to, to LDS theology, to Mormonism. Um, I think sometimes there can be a tendency to use that theology as a way of, of encompassing everything else and overshadowing the uniqueness of the mythologies. Yeah. yeah. But I really, I wanted to allow the other mythologies to shape well, and other religious traditions, spiritual traditions to shape the way that I was practicing poetry and thinking about God mm -hmm. and the acts of worship and creation. I mean, so the Maori theology or Maori uh, mythology became a really rich space for that, especially as I learned about um, the Koru became fascinated with that idea, the unfurling fern frond, so the, right. the roundness of it. It's fascinated yeah. by the idea of the idea of the spiral and what that sure. how that relates to you know, this life and language and the and the tongue, what the tongue is doing when we're speaking, all those things. So it became kind of a fascinating object to um, to meditate on and to use as a starting point for poems and something to come back to so yeah i love that there's a, and i i probably haven't uh mined some of these poems as much as i could have <laughs> but i i do i love um the juxtapositions um of you know these other faith traditions and um being able to kind of um What's the word I want? I don't know, freshen up some of the way that we, um, you know, tend to take for granted the way that we relate to the divine um, mm -hmm. as in our theology, that um, there are, you know, other ways of encountering it that can, um, yeah, like I said, inform um, the way that we see things, the way that we uh, interact with, with God. Yeah. Um, well, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of the, the idea of holy envy. And I see yeah. these traditions and I'm like, oh, that is, it amazes me. And it, it again, reshapes how I would like to worship myself in ways yeah. or how I would like to be praying or thinking about God. So there's that sense of mine. Mine isn't the best one or the only one. And what can I right. learn from these other other traditions? Yeah, I love that. Um, let's see, what was the other, oh, here are my questions. My brain is getting tired already. Um, so your creative process, first of all, I have to comment, um, that yes, when I pick up your book, I'm like, oh, uh, let me get my dictionary. 
immediately. <laughs> and yeah. I do not ever want to have to play Scrabble with Tyler Chadwick. Uh, because over and over, I'm like, I mean, do you just already know these words? Or do you go, oh, here's a good word. I'm going to work this into a poem. Uh, because it's it's um, quite impressive. And I have a new list of words that I'm going to start using. Um, but is it does it come easily for you or is that something that you really work on they're very condensed they're very condensed i yeah. really have to slow down uh, which is good i mean it's good to make your reader do that um but i that's definitely something that i uh have to do so that's i think that's uh i don't know if it's unique but it's not common um i don't know do you want to share and talk about that <laughs> I think part part of that is um, I'm thinking about like the very first poem in the the book is it's one in a series of a smaller series of poems called Desiderata, and there are multiple entries in it. And the first one is called Obsession. Um, and part of that I wanted to start off with that one because the book sort of represents or performs my obsession with words and language um i just i i, I love words um i love language so as a poet that works well for me um <laughs> and like I'll, I'll hear a word and i love how i love how it sounds i like to put it together with another word and how it see how they play off of each other but a lot of what happened i think when i was writing the poems was like I'd see a word when I was reading something else and I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I can use this in a poem. Like how, what does it mean? In what context would it work? Um, and a lot of also what happened was as I was writing and revising, I would, the word didn't feel right. I didn't like how it sounded. I didn't like right. how it came out or came across on the page. So I would go to my dictionary, um, on the most used app on my phone's probably my dictionary app. Um, but I'd go there and I just I'd look through words and I'd I try to sort of plug and play like which one will work yeah, here, which, which one, one gives right. me the which one sounds right and which one also yeah. gives me the the nuance in terms yes. of meaning and connotation that I wanted in the poem. So it was it's it's always as I'm writing um, it's always a process of refining, like what I want to say is like, is this the right word in this moment? And even up sure, to the moment, it, wasn't it Hemingway who said, you know, the hardest thing about writing is picking the right word. I'm not sure if like I attributed that correctly, but some famous writer, that's what they said. <laughs> yeah, somebody famous said that. Well, we we can second it. I agree with that. The right words in the right order. I think that yeah, was what the right it was. words in the right order. Uh -huh. Something like that. Yeah, yeah we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think you did a great job of picking the right words in the right order. <laughs> oh, thank you. Even though um, I hear from so many people who pick it up, they're like, "Whoa, these are these are big words. I can't. These are these are hard poems." Do you feel like they represent your personality? Like, would someone picking this up go, "Oh, that's definitely Tyler," or they go, <sighs> "Whoa, man, where'd you pull those words out of?" You know, that's interesting because I've kind of 
talked with my wife about this a couple of times uh -huh. um, because <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I, I'm a pretty playful guy. I like, I tease other people uh -huh. all the time, probably too much. Um, and like, I don't use words like this in my everyday life, uh, even as a teacher. Um, and so like people walking down the street, they wouldn't think, oh, that guy's a poet. Um, and so that's one thing my wife points out to me. She's like, I did, she said, uh, what was it? Something about like sort of uh, how, I can't believe you're a poet or something like that because it's so like it doesn't fit with these um, other because a poet is serious. Yeah, a poet is 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 serious all the time and is is these things She's like you don't look like a poet. You don't look like the nerd. <laughs> you're whatever. Um, right. But I when you get to know me, I guess you can see me in this or see this in me a little bit because I do like to have deep conversations about things with people about ideas that I feel like are important and I don't do that with everybody so it's this is this is the part of me that I would like people to see if I was well if I was good friends with more than like two people right. in my life right. so <laughs> Yes, I can, I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm very introverted. Um, mm. And I have, I have a core group of friends that they know more levels of me. So, right. You can have deeper conversations. Yeah, I get mm -hmm. that. Um, so uh, is there anything that you, um, you know, hope that people will pick up on in your uh, collection that you wonder if they might not or something that you want people to if they get your book go to this place and read <laughs> this one <laughs> read this one yeah <laughs> um i was thinking about this earlier in preparation for this but like the big one and this probably comes through is just that i'm tinkering with thinking about playing around with the idea of apotheosis like what it is what it what it would mean to be a maker on that scale even here and now as we're making so in both the form and the content i'm playing around with, i think with that idea of of godhood the of divinity what it looks like to have some divinity in us maybe and yeah. to use that to worship um, another thing that i think kind of works its way into the book is that Dana talked about faith crisis, faith journey, um, but this sort of, it represents sort of a, a deconstruction for me, deconstructing a lot of my previously held beliefs mm -hmm. and reconstructing them in new ways. So that ongoing yeah. process of yeah. sort of, how do I say it? So moving away from God or learning to see God in a different way and reconstructing that concept using the different aspects of my life. Yeah. Um, and so that, I mean, that's part of one thing that they'll see in the poem. And there's one poem in particular where they might, Dana actually pointed this out to me when 
she was reading an earlier version of it. There's a poem where I'm meditating on one of J. Kirk Richards' um, poems called Harvest. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what it or every knee shall bow. I titled my poem Harvest, and his is called Every Knee Shall Bow. Um, but it's this it's this beautiful image of uh, there's a Christ figure at the center, and there are people bowed down, sort of like a, a field of wheat. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of white and golden. And I, I think about the idea of, Dana talks about a shipwreck, and I talk about being in there sort of surfacing in this flood of people, sort of drowning in it and reaching up to grab the hem of the Christ figure. And um, so that, and that sort of, I guess, could be a, a space where I'm reaching, trying to reconstruct these ideas about Godhood, to hold myself mm-hmm. up from sort of drowning in it all as I try to understand what it's all about. Yeah, that's a good analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It can feel like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a particular poem that you wanted to read um, from your collection that you, I don't know, feel particularly proud of or wrestled with or um, or any of that. And then after I'm going to go back to Dana and have her read because I neglected to give her time for that. Oh. We're just going to edit that part. Shame <laughs> on you. I know. She got sidetracked. Um, okay. Yeah. The, I was actually, I was thinking about this earlier and I thought it would be fitting since this is the dialogue book podcast mm-hmm. um, to read the most recent version of a poem that was originally published in dialogue. Okay. It was actually the first poem I ever had published in 2006. So, so the original version was 17 years old, um, but wow. it's gone through different iterations sure. since then. Um, and so this now, it's, it was originally titled Fruit, appeared in, I think, volume 39.3 of Dialogue. I could be wrong on that. Uh, but now... It, well, it was originally a triptych, so three different parts, and I didn't like what was happening in the other two, uh, so I cut them out, and now it's just a diptych. I added another section. I cut two out and then added one in, but it's called Diptych to a Former Self Seeking Eden, and I just want to read the first part. It's called First Fruits. And this is uh, on page 51 in the book, if Yeah, anyone. page 51. Okay. How to hear God's voice. Take your wife's hand as she reclines on the table, her bare abdomen, a tight dome beneath the doctor's roaming touch. Believe his witness of your daughter. She's like an apple in a water balloon. Lean against the sentence, settling into consolation and release from the worry stirred by the car accident. Turn to the monitor. Watch your fruit embellish the screen, her shameless repose, her pulse, her fluid breaths submerging the room, baptizing you in grace and expectation. Sound out her heart's insistent whispering, trill with syllables translated from the knowledge tree, the autumn God called on Adam and Eve and asked why their seed was suddenly, was so suddenly ripe with blood. So some of the uh, original poem still lives in there, but mm-hmm. I changed to I was speaking to, of course, to a former self again, to that young mm-hmm. father. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like the thing that really stirred that poem was that statement from the doctor. She's like an apple in a water balloon. <laughs> Set my mind on I couldn't let it go. Right? So I, of course, <laughs> wrote about it. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, yeah, one of my favorites actually was, um, oh, what is it called? I wrote it down. The, so the guy in the red hoodie, that's not the title. Oh, to the man in the red jacket? Yes, My not wife's hoodie. favorite too. You didn't use the word hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's so funny that the way you ended that. Um, but readers, you'll just have to go read it. You'll have to get the book and read it. It's very yes, funny. Yes, do that. <laughs> um, uh, well, thank you um, for sharing with us. Uh, and I do want to um, go back to Dana and have her read a poem, um, which we can lug- luckily edit that transition. Uh, <laughs> apologies to Dana. Oh, no, um, no, please, please, please. Um, and then, and I cannot even remember now what time we started, but it's already 10 o'clock. Um, so I want to have Dana read a poem and then we'll jump into some discussion about Mormon poetry. I think I have to read uh, a, a poem with a Charles Ramston Bailey epigraph. Okay. <laughs> Grandpa. Um, yeah, great, great, great grandpa. Uh, this this poem is called Self-Portrait as Cordelia, Mormon Polygamous Wife. And the first epigraph, there are two epigraphs. The first epigraph is from Charles Ranston Bailey. And I say, if plural marriage or celestial marriage is not true, then Mormonism is all a hoax. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Great, 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 great. Um, and then <laughs> the second epigraph is from King Lear. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom. So the poem is in three sections for the three parts. One, Delia, he calls me, as if his mouth were too full of names to twine the full of mine around his tongue. We are trefoil clover latched to the same stem, fixing nitrogen, converting it to the stuff of life. But now I've become the tearaway thief, far from my husband's affection. Third, the put-away wife, distant as rooster from roasted hen. He used to hold me close, proud of my lace, my waves of lavender-scented hair, the crisp of my bun and starched linens, the way I can make a meal of a willow branch, boiled pigweed and thistle greens, corn cake, or a skillet of seagull lily bulbs, the way I churn out sun after sun like pads of stamped butter with his milky impression. Two, then my niggling questions surfaced. Why father-son spirit, a male-only guild for a godhead? And is father the great polygamist, 
with many goddess wives? And why not prophetesses in Zion, Miriam's and Deborah's and Anna's? I let slip from the pantry the mouse of my doubts, let its warm brown scurry into the open and find myself shelved, long languishing in a rough valley. Chicory and bitter herbs in my garden grow parched under desert sun. Come harvest, I'll glean grain enough to sow, sew a dress of linsey woolsey, dye the cloth with rabbit brush for yellow, then indigo for a summer green to reap again his gaze. Or maybe I'll begin with matter and a mordant less likely to fade. Three, he frequents first wife now, enlarged her log house with an upstairs room. I who care for him know she is low burning coal in a brazier about to spill, a hearth flame without a screen, embers and ash wafting in the updraft. What she touches, she incinerates. Second wife's a cowhide copy branded with first wife's spite. I didn't swallow in marrying him. I'd sister wife them. Both have that glib and oily art of Pharisees, all whited sepulchers with rotting bones beneath. I may as well be in another country, far from his favor and broken faith. Love and be silent. I expect we'll still, all of us, share a grave. Snap, snap. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love the stamped butter, um, the mouse of my doubts escaping from the pantry. Fabulous. Thanks, Liz. Love it. <laughs> I'm curious, Tyler, if you've ever been to Charles Ramston Bailey's uh, grave. Have you been there? Probably when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. We used Many to do the the uh, family grave tour yeah yeah there's there's a giant i don't know if you remember this there's a big obelisk <laughs> oh of course it's the obelisk yes <laughs> and all the names of his children engraved around the sides of the monument wow. and then there's three three little headstones for mm. each of his wives oh boy Three tiny ones. We do a poetry reading there. <laughs> That'd be fun. Next time we have a Heavenly Mother anthology. Well, we'll do it. Father in Wellsville. Yeah. <laughs> Wellsville. Um. So uh, let's talk for a few minutes, at least, about Mormon poetry, about, um, you know, Heavenly Mother, possibly. I know that um, you guys co-edited the anthology together, and I was curious about how that came about. Um, did, uh, yeah, that, how did you guys come up with the idea for that? Whose idea was it? <laughs> it wasn't mine. 
I think the contest was happening, the A Mother Here contest. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was, I was doing another project on my blog, like reading the poems from the contest and writing about them, or like just little short audio recordings of me reading them and then talking about them. Um, and as I was doing that, I like this idea started percolating in the back of my head. These these poems need to be collected. So I don't remember who I reached out to first. Somebody. I said, <laughs> we need to do this. And uh, I feel like we... I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. I feel like you reached out to me and I was like, well, do you know that Marty, it, who was helping to run the contest, Mar mm. Martin yeah. uh, Polito and Carolyn Klein were, were putting on the A Mother Here contest. And I was yeah. like, well, Marty is putting together an anthology of, of the poems. And then you reached out to Marty. Yeah. I don't remember if I reached out to, to Theric Jepson before that. Oh, it may yeah. have been all sort of happening at once. Okay. Um, but then, yeah, like this needs to happen. And then Mar Martin had done a lot of work and brought some of that with him. And then we just, it just sort of got bigger. Yeah, that was, it was a fun project. I felt very, I felt very fortunate that you reached out to me, Tyler. And I don't know if I ever said uh, thank you for doing that because I felt, I felt honored. Okay. <laughs> I was I was honored that you uh, said yeah cool. You were <laughs> like I I just missed you for fire in the pasture. I like hadn't for some reason you never came up on my radar. I think and I then I saw started writing. I, yeah. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And then I saw your stuff and I was like okay. Yep. She's got to do this. Something. And then it turns out that we're cousins. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question then about, uh, you know, Heavenly Mother and the attention that it's got. Uh, and do you think that, um, you know, it's just a trend for now? Do you think that it's going to blossom to something else? Um, what, I don't know, what have you noticed about some of these conversations about Heavenly Mother as a subject matter? Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, I hope, I hope it remains a topic of conversation. I think until there's a balance of feminine and masculine within not just Mormonism, patriarchy exists everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we need more balance. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hope it stays a topic of interest. I think as I'm just sitting here thinking about the history of it, like what happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then just the explosion that's happened in the 2000s and the 2010s. There's so many more people talking about it and more openly. And again, like Dana pointed out, that it's not just a concern or a topic of discussion within Mormonism, but more expansively beyond that, I don't see it going away anytime soon. It's just how my thought is, how is it going to continue 
to develop and what can poetry contribute to the conversation. Um, and I'm, cause I'm thinking about also the review that you know, Susan Howe casually Meyer did of Dove Song for BYU studies. And they said that it was, um, what was the word they used? That it was an apocryphal book of scripture. Um, and so the women or heavenly mother and the feminine divine being sort of not, not in the shadows or on the side, but I don't know that it will ever within the patriarchal hierarchy and the, the system of the church and elsewhere, I don't know that it will ever rise up really within that. It's going to be in the margins and the stories will come from the people who are, who are kind of there. It won't be from the middle. It will be where I would believe the mother would be like on from the margins thinking about it in, in the apocrypha, in the, in the shadows kind of thing. So, um, so I don't, I don't think it's, I would hope again, like Dana, and I don't think that it's going to go anywhere. Um, and I hope that it just continues developing and, and blossoming. Right. And becoming more mainstream and less controversial. <laughs> I mean, it, to me, it doesn't seem like something that should be controversial, but then. Oh yeah. Suddenly. Oh, it is. Oh, uh, okay. Shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, about that. <laughs> I've, I've had experiences with that just mentioning heavenly mother or testifying of you know some bearing witness of the the notion that they're that they are involved in our lives and mm -hmm. people in my ward getting up in arms and the bishop feeling like he needed to uh -oh. have a conversation with me oh dear even though he he was like I don't I mean I agree with you but I just felt like this happened I was like okay <laughs> oh dear um so uh in addition to uh heavenly mother I'm, I'm curious about um what other trends you see in Mormon poetry or or what does Mormon poetry even mean? Um, and, and part of the reason that I, you know, we invited Tyler is because Andrew said, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Mormon poetry. I'm like, I don't really know anything about Mormon poetry. We need to get Tyler in here to talk about Mormon poetry. Um, what how do you define it? Uh, I know it can be defined as, you know, you're a Mormon and you write or you write about Mormon things. Um, but I don't know. How do you feel about those definitions? Or is there an, even a need to say you're a Mormon poet in, you know, if you're a poet? I don't know. I do like to define it as broadly as possible the way mm -hmm. I like define Mormonism as broadly as possible to be as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm coming up on my 10 year anniversary anniversary of my um, separation from church activity. And I still consider myself a Mormon poet. It's, it's the culture I was raised in. It sure. it's my know. worldview in multiple ways that I don't even perceive. 
Yeah. And so even even if I'm not writing about explicitly Mormon topics, I I still consider myself a Mormon poet. Um, one of the reviewers for If Mother Braids a Waterfall, like maybe the the harshest review, but I think I think their point was legitimate. It was like, why does it matter, Mormon, not Mormon? Uh, do we need to label ourselves or lab do we need to label it Mormon poetry? I don't know. Um, I'm curious to hear what, what Tyler has to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a softball question at all. Um, <laughs> no think, pressure. Yeah, none at all. And this has been like in Mormon literature itself, the the definition of Mormon, that modifier has always been sort of a contested thing. Some critics define it one way, some define it another way. Some want it super narrow, some want it as broad as possible. I'm, I'm like Dana, I fall into the, that latter camp as well. And, and that was the approach I took when I was doing Fire in the Pasture is I wanted it to be as inclusive as possible. So people from within well people whose experience with mormonism was far-ranging so i've got people in there who have held positions within high high-ish positions within the church served in state presidencies stuff like that and then there are others who left long ago but they're still consider themselves part of the the fold as it were um because I think for me, the thing that defines a Mormon poet or Mormon poetry is that sort of the language of Mormonism infuses what the writer is doing. It's not that they're, they're really? using Mormon terms, they don't have those, those shibboleths, as it were, um, but the language of the culture infuses every aspect of their lives. And how could it not when like you're brought up in something that's as, um, what's the word I want to use here, as as potent and sort of life encompassing as Mormonism is, it's going to shape the decisions you make, the way you think about the world, and you can't get away from that. It becomes part of the language that you speak. Um, so... I don't know. That's that's no definition of Mormon poetry at all. But that's that's how I think about it. Is you know more broadly than why not make it more broad and be as inclusive? Because we're not. It's not like we have to. Well, it's not like we're using the poetry to. Well proselyte <laughs> yeah the proselyte that's that's the word i was looking for well and i i think that's in a way it's kind of ironic because it to me when i think of mormon poetry it's kind of self-reflexive it's a it's insular uh and it, we there is kind of this insulated community of mormon poets i mean we have our own press mm -hmm. and outside of that you know who are we and i I think a lot of people get into, you know, literature because of this call by, you know, the prophets that we're supposed to have our own Shakespeare's and our own yeah. this and that. And I do think it's a little ironic that, you know, if we're supposed to be this to the world, then why are we so insular? Mm -hmm. And um, part of my thinking is 
maybe we need to stop acting like we have all the answers. Um, Whoa, hey. You know, is that, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of answers, but I, the older I get, the more I feel like we have a lot more questions than, <laughs> I have a lot more questions um, than answers. And um, in order to have that influence, then we have to have a little bit more porousness into um, whatever Mormon poetry is. Um, but, and I think the fact that we we're calling it Mormon poetry puts us in a certain place <laughs> because um, sort of adjacent to um, the what we're supposed to call it. So it's not poetry from members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's we're calling it Mormon poetry. So there's right. we're positioning ourselves in a certain way, even by thinking about it in those terms right. to begin right. with. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask Dana? So what you say, you still consider yourself a Mormon poet, uh, uh, even though, you know, you, you, you've, you're not a actively participating in the church. So, and, and Tyler uh, gave some possible reasons why someone might want to do that, but I'd like to hear from you. Why do you, what, what is it that, what is the power or the draw or whatever it is that, that still, that you still have an identity like that? Mm -hmm um yeah i remember when my brother who left the church when i was younger he went to college and he was called by his friends a storm and mormon and i was kind of offended by that i'm like he doesn't get to call himself a storm. he doesn't get that nickname he's not he hasn't been a member he hasn't been going to church for a long time and now i'm like no I, I get it. It's been 10 years. I, um, gosh, how do I answer that question, Andrew? It's hard. I, I, there's that saying that Mormons leave, but then they don't leave us alone. They leave, but they don't. I, I can't, I can't excise Mormonism from who I am. Yeah. It's my ancestry. It's your identity. It's my identity. It's part of my family. It's part of my language. It taught me to love language. Like all that scripture study and digging into um, the beautiful King James Bible language, which is which was written at the time of Shakespeare, right? And yes. you've got this adjacent beautiful um, language that I was immersed in. Uh, reading deeply and and close reading helped me to fall in love with language. There's uh, a hopefulness and. I feel feel like a desire to do good and and right in the world and and be of service that I think are part of my identity that Mormonism probably shaped in me. Um, yeah, I can't get it out. <laughs> I can't I can't apparently stop writing about Mormonism and Mormon subjects. Thank you. Yeah. So, so what? So maybe looking at other poets is. Do you see any either of you or all three of you? What is, is there any kind of commonalities? I mean, there's so many people doing so many different kind of things. Um, is there something that you see as a kind of a common theme amongst people who might uh, identify as Mormon poets? Hmm. I mean, I personally don't write about Mormonism. 
Um, I mean, I'm from the South. I'm way more of a Southern girl than I am, <laughs> you know, someone, I don't have any pioneer ancestry. Um, but I definitely write about, you know, faith issues and the divine and how that, um, you know, plays into the way I interact with the world. So um, I, and more and more, there are more um, LDS poets who don't necessarily identify as, as Mormon poets. Um, and I mean, it's, the work is all over the place. So I, I don't know, is it a club? <laughs> um, well, let me ask, how about this way? So Tyler, you, you, you edited this collection of poetry in 2011, Fire in the Pasture. Mm -hmm. um, and so now it's been about a decade since then. Have you seen any changes, any evolution uh, in the field since then? Or have, like kind of a new, yeah. What evolutions have you seen since then? One of the big things is just how the field has grown. Like it feels, it feels like there are a lot more of, of us out there want to use that term um or maybe it's just because well i don't i don't know maybe it's because the anthology sort of presented it like this is still happening and it people people started picking up on that and it maybe it gave some more uh, some people permission to start writing out of the tradition or to thinking about the, the tradition through poetry um but I mean, even just the fact that that we have some presses who are still publishing Mormon poetry is is it's huge to me because poetry doesn't make money. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, people aren't going to pick up my book and like, do some light reading with it. Um, <laughs> so like that, I, I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen is just how expansive the field is and can be and i um like there's a, another poet who he reached out to me just recently asking for some advice on editing something else and so just the fact that it's still going is is a huge trend and um i think something to be to be happy about as as a mormon poet and and i feel like it's become so big it's hard for me to keep track of anymore because like things pop up all the time and i just i'm so involved in in teaching right now and other things that it a lot of it i feel like i feel disconnected from it in some ways but um so maybe maybe that is hello yeah that's a big thing for me is it's not one central can't be can't be one central thing anymore there's different pockets of it happening I don't know if that answered your question, but great. <laughs> Liz, anything else we want to talk ask on the subject? Oh gosh. Um what are you working on now? Uh I know there's a big lag time between getting something published and having had it created. And since then, I'm sure you're working on new things. So what what is it there? Can you give us a sneak peek or uh <laughs> tell us what you're mulling over? Go ahead, Dana. <laughs> so I, I actually have another uh, book manuscript that just 
was named an honorable mention for the Wishing Jewel Prize and came in as a finalist for the Light Scatter Press Prize. Oh, great! That's amazing. Yeah, it's a awesome. it's a collection of goddess poems, God the Mother poems, um, and a lot of them are poem broideries where I'm bringing poetry oh, and embroidery together. So I have um, the first poem, poem broidery that I did here, which um, hmm. yeah could maybe be like the cover or something. I don't know. <laughs> this is the back and it's kind of a mess, but. Uh, yeah, so I'm experimenting with bringing poetry and embroidery together, and I've got a manuscript that I'm shopping around. Awesome. Yeah, impressive. <laughs> You're better than I am. Mm. I'm not I feel like, yeah. I'm not as much as you are. That's, that's the huge thing. That's where a lot of my focus has been. Um, yeah, thinking about teaching and pedagogy. Um, but I will say that, like a lot of my thoughts about poetry and language, they they infuse my pedagogy so much that I I feel like, well, when I'm teaching and creating curriculum, that's where my creative energy goes, and I get really excited about that. So that becomes sort of a, a poetic process to me, inviting my students into language. Um, and maybe that's just an excuse for not writing, but um, <laughs> I've also, like, I have ideas for books of poems, and I have a couple of other things. I've got some poems coming out in dialogue the next issue, thanks to this. Um, <laughs> and, like, a couple other things that uh, were published elsewhere that aren't included in the book that could build themselves into another book, but like right now, again, my focus has been mainly on teaching and I'm working on uh, also a series of essays about Alma 32. Um, mm. I've got three in the works. I've presented two at conferences and presenting another one at a conference in May. One of them explores the notion of the mother tree, what the mother tree can teach us about language, how we interact with each other. Um, and so they're kind of they're poetic-ish critical essays where I'm thinking about what Alma Alma's Sermon on the Seed can teach us about language use um, and community building stuff like that. So that's that's a big thing I've been focusing on lately too. And then other book ideas that I touch every now and then. But so those are the two big things: teaching and Alma. I love your essays, Tyler. Oh, thanks. I'm excited. They are. They are impressive. Well, all right. I think we should probably wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Liz, for being the guest host of this uh, discussion. Yeah, yeah thank thanks, you Liz. for letting me participate. And thank you, Dana and Tyler, for, for being with us and for all of your great uh, poetry. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank, thank you to all of you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. The show is produced and, edit, and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. To hear more and find other great content like Blair Hodge's Firesides, interviews about religion and culture with brilliant people who will fan the, fan, fan the flames of your curiosity, go to dialoguejournal.com for all of the Dialogue podcasts.
I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake. Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you get on the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.